Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The question I want to raise today, is there in John, and of course John in the beginning is following Genesis in the beginning. He's describing the creation. But is there the notion that evil, you know, in Genesis, the darkness and chaos is there in the opening verses. Is there the idea that this proceeds and enters into creation from its inception? Or is John, in fact, foreclosing on this kind of narrative gap that locating the origin of evil actually subsequent to creation? Now this may sound like, well, that's sort of an academic question, and why does that matter? Well, it matters because the false teachers that I believe John is dealing with in the gospel and also in the epistles, uh, the Gnostics or the proto-Gnostics, there's many people that are going to talk this way today, that they find in Genesis and even in John a kind of cosmic dualism in which light and darkness are engaged in an ongoing ontological struggle that began before time. For example, Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher who takes up Plato, he presumes that in Genesis, when it talks about the chaos and emptiness and the darkness, that these were from before creation. And so too, some interpreters of John, even today, you know, John says that from him was nothing was made that has been made. They'll say, ah, see, there's the nothing. It came into being apart from the logos. They're misreading the book. And they're going to say, but these things, this darkness and, you know, this kind of non-being, this is over and against being. And the nothing then of creation, ex nihilo, you know, creation from nothing, is assigned a kind of actual reality in this false teaching and then there is a false reading put upon the gospel. I think that's precisely what John is writing against. So let me go back, let me read the opening chapter of Genesis and then the opening chapter of John and let's look and see what's happening here. I'm not reading the whole chapter, I mean just the first verses here. Genesis 1, 1 to 3 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And so they'd say, ah, see, there's the void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. Ah, there's the darkness. That must be representative of evil. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then let's look at John, the opening of John. Very same beginning. In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos. And obviously referring to Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There is a clear picture of creation from nothing or ex nihilo 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then the light shines in the darkness. Ah, see, there's the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. So is it the case that there was a pre-existent evil resistance to creation? And this is represented by the darkness. Or is the darkness, the evil, the sin, subsequent to creation and accounted for within the story, the story of creation or the story of the gospel? And what's at stake here? Is sin and evil something we can locate, that we can name it, identify it, and also then understand its defeat, that we understand, oh, this is a definitive battle in which the light wins, or is it the case that this is such a huge cosmic thing that we're kind of just mere pawns in this struggle and we cannot know from whence it came or where it's going? And actually the answer to this divides Christendom, Christianity, maybe roughly between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. But it also amounts to two readings of John. And the basic contention is whether John uh, is a text that accords, you know, is this like Plato? John is using a Platonic word here, logos. That's a Greek philosophical word. Is John using that word the way that Plato used it? You know, the idea, identity through difference or a kind of dualism. Or, in fact, is John describing an understanding that is over and against the Greeks and the Gnostics? And of course, I think it's this. I think it's the latter. And there's really no part of the Christian enterprise that is not going to be affected by how we think of the Logos. Is it, you know, a kind of abstraction? And that's the way it's often been taken. Conceived as, oh, not the gospel, not the word of the cross, but as the pre-existent Christ. Maybe just kind of a first principle. And this accounts for or accords with the mystification of sin. Oh, we really can't understand sin. The turn to apologetics. Oh, well, we defend through pure reason. Or the focus on a kind of abstract atonement theory in which we cannot really see the defeat of evil. And a kind of privileging of the law. It is within the parameters of the law that the gospel is being told. And philosophically, there is the turn to what is called nominalism. This is predominant in the period, the late Middle Ages, the modern period in which Protestantism arose. And nominalism is the idea that we really can't know reality or ultimate reality or God in his essence. And so this question is going to determine the basic tenor of theology. The provenance of evil and the logos, I believe, are interconnected. That is what we do with these two things. Is John depicting a struggle before time between the pre-incarnate logos and evil? Or is he saying, well, here is the introduction to this story and we can see everything happening in this story. And so if we begin with the pre-incarnate Christ, I think this is a misunderstanding that separates out the word 
you know, the logos separating the word from the word of the cross. Making a division between the work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and the word of Christ. And so the nominalist positing of a kind of empty sign like we were talking this morning, you know, in a Zwinglian or a uh, a common understanding of communion or baptism, this is precisely arising in a nominalist understanding in which they're saying the word and the work are divided. There's a gap posed between God and creation. And so Luther and Calvin could not conceive of first order participation, real participation in the divine nature. You know, there's this kind of idea, God's hidden, and we can never know him in his essence, even in Christ. And man is totally depraved, and justification is outward, it's legally imputed, it's not a real world justification, and there's no real participation in the divine life. My point, though, is this nominalist, Protestant, kind of de-evolution. It really is there in the philosophical, political understanding from Hegel, Kant, to Marx, to that Nietzschean idea that God is dead. It's not simply a modern problem, but of course I think this is the problem that John is dealing with. The incarnate identity in the New Testament and early church, and John is going to confirm this, is pictured as definitively established in the cross. What does the Logos mean at the beginning of John? It means the same thing as the gospel, the word of the cross, Christ crucified and raised. The presumption in John and among the early church fathers was not that this identity was some pre-incarnate form of the Logos. And so John opens his depiction of Actually, it's recreation, right? In the beginning is the light. And the light is personified in Christ. And with the confirmation of creation ex nihilo through Christ, now there's also the resistant chaos of darkness. The light shines in the darkness, John says, but the darkness does not comprehend it. What does that mean? Well, it... it may mean the darkness does not overtake it, the darkness does not grasp it, does not overpower it, does not vanquish it. The idea is that the light by its very existence penetrates, relativizes the darkness. The darkness is not absolute. And so as in Genesis, you know, we can read Genesis this way too, the chaos of the waters and the darkness of night that's not a condition pre-existing creation. The formless and void condition and the darkness over the surface of the deep, it's a product of creation and it's limited by the light. And in the midst of the waters, you know, we see God creating, actually it's the waters above and the waters below, that here is the creation of atmosphere. And there's the creation of land. And so too in John, Jesus' movement between heaven and earth is on the order of the creation of the atmosphere in which heaven and earth meet as the life and breath of God are made available. And also in John we can name the darkness. And that's what we'll do today. We'll go through it and say, what is this darkness? 
And we see that the darkness can not only be named, but it can be grasped, it can be comprehended. It is overpowered. At the end of the gospel, you know, when John says, it is finished, those, of course, are the words from creation. When God says creation, it is finished. And so the work of Christ is finished at the cross. It sums up creation and recreation. And so that, the idea is the entire story, the beginning and end, are contained in the gospel. And we don't need to posit a story whose plot we really don't know and can't understand. So it's not that darkness takes on an enduring kind of substance in John, or that there's a dualism between light and dark, you know, in which they're two equal and opposite powers. But John is depicting a decisive defeat of the darkness and not a balancing out of the powers. And so, you know, if we think of this in terms of the human disease, it's not as it is for the Gnostics, oh, well, we need to reconcile the light and the darkness. We need to balance those out. You know, this is the movie Star Wars. There's the good side of the force and the dark side of the force, and you've got to, in some way, balance it out. This is typical of Gnostic dualism, in which evil is pictured as competing with good in reality. That is, that they have the same substance. And in this world, good and evil, or life and death, that constitutes reality. There's always this struggle between opposed pairs. You know, this is actually right out of Plato. He writes the sophist, and the, I'll quote very briefly here, from the sophist, the stranger in the sophist says, whereas we have not merely shown that things that are not are, but we have brought to light the real character of not being. That is, this not being, this nothing, is in competition, and actually it's necessary to be in the Greek world. And in the Gnostic world, that John, you know, the false teachers are challenging. In other words, the nothing and the non-existent competes with and participates in being. And so there's a dualism that's posited and reality and truth, you know, in the idea here, it's not that, oh, you can just go with one side or the other. Plato will even talk about a lie. He'll say that the truth implies a lie and a lie implies the truth and therefore a lie has as much substance as the truth. And so the problem is that life, peace, goodness, and light they do not survive either conceptually or as lived possibilities when paired with death, violence, evil, and darkness. Where life is gained through death, where peace is the product of war, where goodness is simply an end product of a struggle with evil, where light is apprehended through the darkness. This kind of oppositional reality, it infects both poles of the good and evil. If you think back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree was false. That's a lie. The truth is in the tree of life. The lie resides not in one of the opposed pairs. Oh, we can do the good over and against the evil. But the idea is that system is what John is calling into question. He calls this the cosmos of darkness. 
And it's a lie. It does not present a true picture, really, of even what alienation is. Because in alienation, you presume that, oh, if I struggle hard enough, I'll achieve peace or light or goodness. No, the, the entire mode is mistaken. And so John's gospel opposes this Gnostic tendency. And I think not just because, oh, that's the false teaching of his day. I just think that's the false teaching of every day. This identity through difference. I think this is the universal form of sin. You know, we read this this morning in Romans 6 that Paul says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? There's the Gnostic idea. Oh, the sin and the, the good, they're necessarily tied together. We get more grace by sinning. And so sin is posited as a means to the good. The peace, you know, through war or life through death. This, this antagonism, it misconstrues the power and substance of war and death. It not only does that, but of course you lose peace and truth in the prospects. So John's gospel it is going to define the cosmos of darkness not through dualisms, but through what we might call dualities. But in this, he's going to reduce and collapse one pole of the opposed pairs. That is, the darkness is overcome by the light. Life will defeat death. Heaven will come to earth. And even the children of the devil, you know, there's very strong language in John, they will become the children of God. So the evil, fleshly world below, this is not an enduring, autonomous reality, but it's exposed, it's defeated, it's overcome, it's redeemed even. And so the light is not only apprehended through belief, this is in chapter 12 of John. He says, you will become yourselves sons of light. So he says, come to the light, don't walk in the darkness. And it's not that the darkness is, you know, a definitive direction. We always think, oh, that the satanic or the evil has some sort of clear purpose. But of course, the way that Jesus describes it, he says that if you walk in the darkness apart from the, the light, you don't know where you're going. You walk in the darkness, and you don't know what you're doing or where you're going. And it will overtake you. But then he says, if you walk in the light, then you imitate Christ, and this is to avoid the dark. You, you completely put out the darkness. Now, it's true in John that I, I worked for a Jewish rabbi when I was in graduate school, and he thought that John was the most anti-Semitic of all the books in the Bible. And it's true that in John, his depiction of the Jews, the Jews are just representative of people. They represent the darkness that Jesus says, he comes from above, but you Jews are from below. You're children of the prince of the world. You're from your father, the devil. And you choose to do your father's desires. This was John chapter 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and the father of lies. That's pretty strong language. And here we find the most extreme of these kind of oppositional dualities. Such that 
we might even see this as a kind of demonization of the Jews. Unfortunately, I think this is the way Luther reads John. He thinks that the Jews in this case are a kind of enduring and stable opposition to Christianity. No, that's not what John is talking about. He's talking about these people are themselves going to be redeemed. This kind of anti-Semitic understanding that is worked out among German Lutherans, I'm afraid that we all may be guilty of missing the point that the Jews are representative of humanity. You know, John, of all the New Testament writers, states in 422, salvation is from the Jews. And in John, Jesus identifies himself with the Jews. He says, we worship, that is, we Jews worship what we know, 422. And so a Christian tradition geared to these kind of oppositional dualities turned the cross against Israel one which was the basis of Israel's rejection and even destruction. Yet John tells us in chapter 11 that it was for Israel that Jesus died. Those who most violently oppose him are the very instruments through which salvation is wrought. Not because God is pulling all the strings to kill Jesus so that his anger might be appeased, but because the evil that he would confront in these who are his own is the evil that he confronts in all of us. The black and white world of the Jews, which is representative of us all, maintains rigid boundaries and oppositional stances. You know, there's inside, outside, there's Jews, Gentiles, there's Sabbath keeping, there's rules of purity, There's cleanness and uncleanness, which demarcate, you know, men and women, which organize and define Jewish life. And for the Jews, the law with its oppositional dualities, that's their world. And their mistaken orientation to the law, which is again a universal failure, Paul is going to describe, John is describing the same thing. We've all failed in regard to the law is one which imagines the law and all it entails is an end in and of itself. And so Jesus as the Logos, as the source of the cosmos, as a temple replacement, as Lord of the Sabbath, you know, the Sabbath and the seventh day, these are the very purpose of the cosmos, as the embodiment of the law. Jesus threatens the totality of their reality. Here is one world order breaking into another. And this means Jewish notions of black and white, of kind of oppositional dualities, begin to break down. And this is illustrated. I think this is the point of Jesus' confrontation with these prototypical individuals, the Jews usually. In chapter 3, it's with Nicodemus. Here is the prototypical Jew. And he's thrown into a crisis. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. You know, is he in or out? Is he follower of Jesus or is he not? It's kind of hard to say. Because he comes to Jesus at night. He comes to Jesus, but it's at night. It says in 3.1, he's a man of the Pharisees. And that will always be his identification. He's a ruler of the Jews. And of course, Jews in John designates unreceptivity. Yet he came to Jesus like the disciples, 
who have been described, you know, even before this in John, Nicodemus' initial profession. Rabbi, you're a teacher from God. Well, that's not real strong, you know, uh, if you compare it to Andrew, who says, we found the Messiah. Or Nathaniel says, oh, you're the son of God. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, born anew, unless one erases one notion of the cosmos, I think that's what he means, and begins again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, Nicodemus, you seem to be a little bit blind. Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand this? That is, he doesn't even understand the concept of rebirth, of world change, of you know, character shift, which of course is thematic in the Hebrew scriptures. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, 10 to 12 in chapter 3, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so Nicodemus cannot escape his Jewish cosmic frame of reference. In the middle of the book, Jesus is going to be put on trial. And guess who's there in the Sanhedrin? Nicodemus. Look at 750 to 51. Nicodemus defends Jesus. But how does he defend him? He appeals to the procedures of the law. He says, my fellow Jews, you're not following the law. And when the Pharisees condemned Jesus and rebuked the officers for failing to arrest him, Nicodemus kind of unveils the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And so he believes, kind of, to some degree, and he speaks up precisely when the Pharisees claim no informed Jew would believe. Well, wait a minute, there's Nicodemus. And then they turn on the arresting soldiers. You know, they sent out the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And the soldiers come back empty-handed. They say, we couldn't arrest him. You couldn't believe this man's words. They say, oh, have you been led astray? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. And of course, the question is, well, wait a minute. What about Nicodemus? But this crowd which does not know the law, they say, is accursed. And then Nicodemus says... Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? These words seem to repeat Jesus' injunction. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus' words refer to a judgment regarding himself. Nicodemus is referring to correct legal procedures. And so I think Nicodemus, in his transformation, or not, is representative of those mentioned in 2.23-25 whose faith is based on signs. It says he came by night, though it was equally true that he came, that is, to the light that shines in the darkness, and his hesitancy to openly believe. You know, in John it says it again and again, 7, 9, 19, for fear of the Jews. And it says this about Nicodemus. So he comes secretly even after Jesus has been crucified with Joseph of Arimathea. And of course, Joseph of Arimathea, at least in John, does all the talking. And the last thing we see Nicodemus do is preparing a hundred litres of burial spices 
And is this a kind of attempt to preserve the body of Jesus? You know, the one who said, I am the life, I am the resurrection and the life. And here he's bringing burial spices. I think it's significant symbolically. And so Nicodemus is typical of John that he paints in shades of gray and leaves us with a kind of ambiguity. You know, the Jews, some of whom are disciples of John the Baptist, some of whom have an incomplete faith, some who were secret Christians who remained within the synagogue. You know, they were disciples of Jesus. They believed in him, but they were afraid of, in chapter 12, being put out of the synagogue for fear of the Jews. And so Nicodemus demonstrates a theme in John of one individual in which there is a kind of crisis initiated by Christ. And Jesus' confrontation with the Jews, it does not assume that darkness and evil are an ongoing reality with which he must compete. It is precisely where darkness and evil are allowed to do their worst that they are undermined. That is, in Christ, his overcoming of evil appears in his trial, in his death. John devotes many pages to the passion of Christ. And so this is the opposite of dualism, in that this oppositional reality is given full weight and allowed to play itself out and is exposed in the process. Darkness, we are assured, does not conquer the light. And that's the story of John. No, the light conquers the darkness. The point of the gospel is not that human wickedness at its culminating point is beyond redemption. Even the children of the devil are going to believe. And so Christ does not oppose the Jews any more than he opposed Jesus or Nicodemus or the world of darkness. Jesus loved the world, for God so loved the world and came into the world to save it, not to condemn it and destroy it. Oppositional dualities are overcome. Enmity between Jews and Greeks are overcome ethnic and religious divisions. You know, we see it in John between Jews and Samaritans. Enmity of gender between men and women or of class difference between slaves and free. These are no longer the means of doing identity because in John it says we worship in spirit in chapter 4. This is the conversation with the woman at the well. We worship in spirit and truth. And so the closed cosmos in which the oppositional dualities of the law. This structures everything. This is undercut in John's picture of redemption in which his identity encompasses all of these differences. And so there are no secret deals. There is no dark bloodletting, no prior chaos before creation with which God has to deal. We see the darkness, we comprehend, we understand, and we see the darkness defeated. God has definitively and finally spoken in the Logos, the word of the cross. John ends with, it is finished, the spirit is given, recreation, resurrection has commenced. And so any social or religious order founded upon seeking God in chaos, I believe is directly refuted 
by this God who speaks directly and clearly into the world, in the word of the cross, the logos of God, the light of the world. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.